Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 14th, 2012, and my guest is Lawrence H. White of George Mason University. His latest book is The Clash of Economic Ideas, The Great Policy Debates and Experiments of the Last 100 Years. Larry, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Good to be back. Our topic for today is your book, The Clash of Economic Ideas. It's a real tour de force. It covers, as promised, the major policy debates of the last century, the economists who were involved, and it dips back into the past to talk about those economists' predecessors, including Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Mill, Bentham Say, Marx, Malthus, and so on. The writing is incredibly clear. You'll learn a lot if you read this book. I learned a lot. And you begin with, not surprisingly, Keynes and Hayek. What I found most interesting is your revisionist take on two seemingly true claims, uh, that Keynes was the first macroeconomist and that everyone before Keynes was pretty much laissez-faire. Uh, you take a different approach uh, to both of those claims. Uh, explain. Yes. Um, I'm able to use Paul Krugman as the foil, <laughs> having made both those claims. Uh, he's not the only one, though. Skidelsky is – certainly not the only one. I'm sure he learned it from someone else. Um, right. Robert Skidelsky, Keynes' biographer, suggests that Keynes invented macroeconomics. Um, so if we define macroeconomics as the study of business cycles, which seems like a natural definition, uh, economists have been discussing business cycles ever since there were business cycles. And the deep theoretical discussions, I think – have to go back at least to the 1830s when people were arguing about renewal of the Bank of England's charter and the question of whether the Bank of England was responsible in some way or in some part for the business cycles that were happening in England in those days. So there were the famous currency and banking schools and a group I call the free banking school who were arguing against the Bank of England's monopoly privileges. But they all had business cycle theories. They all had theories about what was causing the up and down in the economy and whether uh, the Bank of England was to blame. The banking schools didn't think so, but the currency school and the free banking school thought that the Bank of England and to differing extents, the rest of the banking industry uh, were responsible. So they were monetary theories of the business cycle. If you want to talk about macroeconomics in terms of aggregation, in terms of thinking in large concepts like the money supply and total output, I would say you have to go back at least to Irving Fisher. He develops all those con uh, concepts, in fact, develops index numbers so that he can measure the price level. Um, and so those concepts are already around when Keynes comes on the scene. Fisher was and, early part of the 20th century, right? That's right. So Keynes' famous uh, general theory is 1936. But Fisher is already talking about these things around the turn of the century. Uh, of course, there was, also, the, there was also Mises, right, and, and other of the Austrian folks who were interested in, in business cycle theory, right? That was independent of that earlier discussion. Absolutely. Well, they're, they're building on the earlier discussion, actually. Mises is explicitly building on the currency school in the debate of the middle of the 
19th century. Uh, and between the currency school and Mises is the great figure of Nutvik Sell in Sweden, who tried to, to combine uh, the monetary theories of the currency and free banking schools with Austrian capital theory, which he learns from, and from Bombaverk and uh, actually improves, clarifies, makes a little more rigorous. Uh, so Mises is building on those predecessors. Uh, but right, in the 1920s, there the business cycle, the leading business cycle theory is the Austrian theory, which I talk about in chapter uh, three, I guess it is, of the book. Uh, and then Keynes's contribution I talk about in chapter five. So disagreements among economists over the role of government in the economy go back well before Keynes, and there are people on both sides. So Keynes himself refers back to the debate between Malthus and Ricardo, where Malthus sees a a bigger role for government in trying to uh, steer the economy. Um, but the language and the terms in which the argument uh, has been conducted have changed, but there's always been a range of opinion as to whether the government should be larger or smaller. But the part that struck me about the book, and I, and I think in a way uh, we'll talk more about this as our conversation goes on, but I was just I think there is this sort of this stylized view that until the Great Depression, forget Keynes, until the Great Depression, everybody was a laissez-faire capitalist, um, and you throw around names, well, Adam Smith, or, or <laughs> you know, and and yet right. clearly, with the late part of the 19th century, which brings us Marshall and Pigou, mm -hmm. uh, we get the beginnings of a very different, much more interventionist approach. That really grows out of the progressive movement that's sweeping the world, a more uh, a view that we can solve our problems by applying human reason. I often call this on this program the engineering perspective. Engineers have called to complain to me that that's unfair to engineers. But um, <laughs> it, it's a confidence in the ability of bringing uh, academic disciplines to bear on social problems. And economics was just another aspect of that. And it was not a minority, tiny opinion. It was growingly, it was growing and, and increasingly uh, widely held, it right. seemed to me, what, based on your book. Right. And one of the clear indicators of that is the foundation of the American Economics Association uh, around the turn of the century. And one, the people involved in that were institutionalists who had learned their economics in Germany uh, in the era of Bismarck. And came back to the United States with all these ideas about uh, how government can play a larger role in the economy. And in the initial statement of principles of the American Economics Association, drafted by uh, Richard T. Ely and some of his cohorts, there's an explicit statement that we believe in the positive role of the state uh, in improving the behavior of the economy. And I don't remember exactly what words they use, but a pretty explicit dismissal of the idea of laissez-faire as a way of organizing the economy. So they're bringing the ideas from Germany in the 1870s and institutionalist economics in the United States is a very important input into the progressive movement in the United States. Ely and John Commons and other institutionalists were important in pushing for labor reform regulation and uh, other kinds of, a, of federal uh, intervention into the economy. And they play a big role in the uh, policies of the New Deal, as it turns out. In what way? Well, uh, 
the ideas of the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which are the first New, New Deal uh, programs, are created by an economist named Rexford Tugwell from Columbia, who was a member of Roosevelt's Brain Trust. But Tugwell got his ideas in large part from the institutionalist school. He added a few other things into it. But the idea of these acts was to create uh, committees or cartels, their critics call them, uh, but groups that would regulate industries with participation from big business and labor, but with the federal government as kind of the senior partner, uh, setting prices and quantities and labor uh, hiring um, quantities. So that, that comes out of a very uh, top-down interventionist view of government's role in the economy. Yeah, I just I found that part of the book extremely interesting because uh, it just isn't something I was aware of, especially the, the early days of the American Economic Association, which, again, I think a lot of economists would just presume were doctrinaire uh, free marketers. Um, and well, the, there were, of course, more free market economists than those who started the AEA, and they joined uh, eventually the AEA, and it's become less uh, ideological, the AEA, and more just a professional organization. But the beginning of it, it was modeled after the Verein for Sozialpolitik in Germany, which was the organization of the German historical school for social reform, basically. Now, while we're on the topic of the Great Depression, uh, it comes up later in the book when you're talking about monetarism, and you address um, something that, that's bothered me for for a while, which is an article that uh, Paul Krugman wrote shortly after Milton Friedman's death, uh, which I thought the timing was rather strange. But in in that article, he accused Friedman of being intellectually dishonest yes. uh, in his claim that that the Great Depression was caused by the Fed. And Krugman said it's a, it's a legitimate argument. I just didn't think his the insulting was was um, very appropriate. But the argument was the following: that if you go back to Friedman and Schwartz, um, monetary history of the United States, uh, they argue that the money supply dropped dramatically. I think by a third at the beginning of the Great Depression. That's right. And the Fed should have uh, intervened to expand liquidity and instead they they felt that monetary policy was actually expansionary and they refused to to expand as a result and some of this is is semantics but Krugman's point is that that's not quite the same as causing the great depression it's a failure to fix the great depression um you have an interesting take on that what is it yeah so Krugman uh, accuses Friedman of something close to intellectual dishonesty in in his scientific writings, having this view that the Fed should have done more to restore the size of the money stock, but in his popular writings saying the Fed was to blame for the depth of the Great Depression, leaving the impression that the Fed did too much, whereas Krugman says what they're really saying is the Fed didn't do enough. Uh, what Krugman doesn't seem to realize is there's a standard by which to uh, measure whether the Fed did enough, and that was what did the clearinghouse associations did do in the earlier financial panics, like the Panic of 1907, the institutions that the Federal Reserve Act 
in a sense, nationalized, yeah. their, their roles were taken over by the Federal Reserve. So the clearinghouse associations in those panics, especially 1893 and 1907, had acted as lenders of last resort, had issued more currency, which actually wasn't legal for them to do, but they did it and nobody prosecuted them because it was clearly helping. Uh, and the Fed, in the crisis of the early 30s, uh, 30 to 33, just sat on the sidelines, uh, didn't expand the quantity of currency, didn't uh, try to make loans to illiquid banks. So the Fed did less than the monetary than the banking system would have done for itself in the absence of the Federal Reserve Act. So Friedman and Schwartz's conclusion is the banking system would have been healthier if the Fed had never been created. And Krugman thinks that's inconsistent with saying the Fed did too little, but it's not at all inconsistent with saying the Fed did too little. Given that the Fed had been given the roles of the clearinghouse associations, it was the Fed's duty to behave like a clearinghouse association and not sit on completely on the sidelines, but uh, try to organize some self-help efforts uh, for banks that could use the help. Now, one of the parts that's interesting about about your book is that, of course, you put many things into historical and intellectual context that, that often are forgotten. Uh, a lot of people treat the Great Depression as being a 1929 problem. Uh, if your Keynes, the early Keynes calls it a magneto problem, uh, a metaphor of the car, right. the alternators – Magneto is the British term for the alternator that somehow the system's not – it's out of whack. And and Keynes emphasized the uh, – what he saw as the inability of the of the uh, system to, to self-correct without, without government intervention. Uh, then you have th – that's the Keynesian view and it, of course, comes to sweep the field. Uh, Friedman later says, no, 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 no. It wasn't a Magneto problem. It was a collapse in the – in the quantity of money, and and the government had this had the tools to fix that. Given that, as you said, they had previously uh, they had destroyed the tools that had previously been available, so it, it was a government problem. It wasn't something inherent in in um, in capitalism. But the Austrians and you point out that it's hard to look at the the economy didn't start in 1929, right. and. It started before, um, long before, and that the period from 1920 to 29, 21 to 29, the post-1920 depression period, which was a, a, a great moderation of its day, a, a time of, of growth and prosperity and uh, causing many people to think it would last forever, including Irving Fisher. Yeah, and that, price stability. Yeah, and, and so what puzzled me about that view um, – and and we've you and I have talked on this program before about about the Hayekian view of that period and the Austrian view generally. But what I found interesting is just a small note you made in there about what Friedman would have said about that period that that he didn't think it was problematic. And I'm surprised you said that. And here's why. Uh, I think you said that during this period, money supply growth was quite large. It was about six percent. So you also just mentioned that it was a time of relative price stability, relatively stable prices, I should say. Yeah. And those seem inconsistent. Did Friedman really suggest that the 20s was a, a golden era of monetary policy that could have been sustained at 6% money growth? 
Well, he did say things suggesting that. He also said at one point that if the money supply hadn't collapsed, that there would have been simply a garden variety recession. So in that way, I guess he did recognize that there was going to be a recession. So it wasn't that the boom could be sustained indefinitely. But, you know, as you say, what I what I try to emphasize is that uh, in contrast to the view of Friedman and it turns out of Keynes that everything was pretty peachy in the 1920s and the problems only began in 1929, you have the Austrian view, which is the problems were building up before 1929 and the downturn in the economy and the crash of the stock market were symptoms of problems that were already in the works. Uh, but I don't. I do give Friedman credit for helping to explain why the depression was so deep and so long. I don't think the view that the economy was heading for a recession uh, predicts that it would have been a recession of 15 years and incredible drop, yeah. unprecedented drop in output. True. Uh, you have a story in there. I, I apologize for asking you to pull it up off the uh, out of memory, but you have a story in there of I think it's Mises. Uh, when he's asked, uh, surely he wouldn't suggest doing nothing. Do you remember the story? Yes. So what's the story? Because it's a it's a complaint that those of us who are skeptical of government intervention today to solve the economy painlessly are often confronted with this challenge that oh, we, you wouldn't just sit around and do nothing. And what was the story? Well, it's it's an apocryphal story. I'm not. I don't really have a source for it, but I've I've heard it secondhand. Uh, so Ed, Mises gives a lecture and talks about how the economy needs to be left alone to recover in a recession. And a woman in the audience raises her hand and says, "Professor Mises, surely you're not suggesting that the government should do nothing." And he says, "Madam, I'm suggesting that the government should have started doing nothing a long time ago." Yeah, <laughs> that that's the that the right. So the, they had created the boom, and now. We have the recession, and we can't avoid going through the recession. Yeah, th there is a certain feeling that um, we just have to find the right painless cure. I, I find it strange. We're recording this in May of uh, 2012, and there was an article in the Washington Post just yesterday that that Spain maybe is going to reconsider austerity, as if austerity were a choice, uh, a strategic maneuver on the part of some European nations. Rather, yes. rather than, rather than a reality uh, that well, when you've spent, yeah, it's <laughs> it's as though a household who've maxed out their credit card have a choice but to moderate their consumption. Right. Or now, in theory, you could you could go get another card, but when you've asked all the people for a new card and they've turned you down because they don't like your past pattern of behavior, right. um, you could either go to jail or you can cut back. You don't. It's not like, well, but cutting back is going to be so painful. Yes, it's, but it's better than going to jail, and there isn't a third alternative if no one will lend you money. Of course, there is. You can quit the eurozone. You can start printing money of your own, and that's not so pleasant either. But um, and in that sense, there's a choice, but, but it's not like they pick the wrong strategy. To me, the right analogy is it's a gambler. You know, He keeps losing, and he keeps borrowing money from his friend, and finally his friend says, you know, I don't want to – I don't want to – Keep lending you money. He says, no, you don't understand. Just give me a little bit more. If I win, I'll make it all back. Well, that's always possible, <laughs> right? That's the Keynesian. But I'm going to grow so much from your right. borrowing, this borrowing, it's going to pay itself back and then some. But, you know, sometimes you just get tired of betting on a loser. Um, 
Well, you can countries that are deeply indebted can go into the uh, international bond market and try to sell their bonds, but they're not going to find many takers at any interest rate they're happy paying. Yeah, that's right. In the last chapter of the book, I talk about the sovereign debt crisis. Where do you think we're going? Uh, well, the United we're. States... I don't know what I mean by we're, but yeah. I don't know where we're going. Where do you think you, some nations are going? Well, Greece has already defaulted. Uh, it looks like uh, there may be some other partial defaults in Portugal, and uh, I'm not sure about Ireland, but um, I, I think you're right. They don't have much choice, but if, if they want to avoid default, um, but to try to rebuild their credit, which means making a credible commitment to having the wherewithal to service their debts, which means they can't run large deficits indefinitely. They need a credible plan for bringing in enough revenue minus expenditure to uh, pay the interest and principal on the debt. Uh, whether they're going to be able to do it, well, clearly Greece wasn't able to do it. Uh, in the U.S., we've hit 100% of debt-to-GDP ratio, and the debt keeps growing. The debt keeps growing faster than the economy, so the ratio of debt-to-GDP keeps rising, and that can't go on forever. And as Herb Stein famously said, if something can't go on forever, it won't. Yeah, usually uh, true. Something needs to change. But if we want to avoid falling into the same kind of debt trap that Greece fell into, where they can't there's no way they can afford to roll over their debt. Even if they started running zero deficits tomorrow, when you're paying 12, 15, 20% interest on your debt, the debt is growing faster than the ability to repay it. When you say they've defaulted, you're saying that because they've not they've had they forced their uh their creditors to take a, a loss, a very large haircut, yes. Yeah. Um going going back to philosophical issues, you know, I have to say one of the themes that runs through the book is the refrain from my song with John Popola, which way should we choose, more bottom-up or more top-down? The fight continues, Keynes and yeah, Hayek, second I round. I have suggested in some uh, presentations of the book I've made that people should regard it as a handy com uh, compendium to your videos. <laughs> yeah, it it, it definitely uh, – I think compendium's a bit – I appreciate the ironic humility there, Larry, um, <laughs> comparing your work of scholarship to – to what uh, John and I did, but uh, yeah, but you have three million hits. So yeah, I can sell three million copies. <laughs> you know, if we could just sell it ten percent of that, even ten um, percent of that. <laughs> uh, but what I noticed, um, what was you don't highlight this particularly, but it's you, you can't help but notice it is that the debate which Keynes and Hayek started in in the nineteen thirties. It's the same debate in Germany after the war. It's the same debate in India after independence. It's the same debate we're having right now. Uh, it's always a question of whether we should have more or less government rather than more or less um, bottom-up and emergent decision-making. There is that aspect to it, but I don't want to be uh, seen as treating all of these debates as the same debate. There are different uh, aspects and angles and forms they take. I mean, there are different forms of government intervention that are being advocated in different times and places. So in India, it's five-year planning, but with 
a privately owned economy. So it's not quite the same as the socialist calculation debate where people are talking about government owning and running everything directly. And in uh, Germany, in Germany, it's price controls. Uh, that's right. In post-war Britain, it's nationalizations. I like the story you tell of Erhard comes uh, to Lucius Clay or is on the phone with Lucius Clay, the uh, U.S. Army commander in Germany, and he uh, tell that story. Yeah, so Ludwig Erhard is a, a classical liberal economist who has spent the war in Germany uh, and manages to become the economic director of the U.S.-U.K. occupation buy zone. Uh, there's a whole story about how he fortuitously fell into this job. But anyway, uh, he's in charge, and they've jointly, he and the U.S. military, have decided to introduce a new currency, uh, the Deutsche Mark, to replace the old war currency, the Reichsmark. And uh, General Clay's office gets wind that uh, Erhard is planning not just to announce the new currency, but to announce decontrol of prices. Now, one of the ironies is that the Nazis had controlled prices and rationed goods all through the war, not surprising, but the U.S. occupation authorities continued the system when they took over. Just inertia, I guess. They didn't or, know what else to do. Yeah, or maybe they felt it would be – it would enrage the populace and they needed to keep them on their side. Well, one of their advisors Nothing, they, advising you know, them to keep the price controls and rationing in place was John Kenneth Galbraith, who was seconded by the uh, U.S. State Department – Galbraith, of course, had been a price controller in the U.S. during the war, was in the process of writing a book called A Theory of Price Controls, defending the practice. So he comes to Germany and says there's no chance of getting recovery by decontrol. Anyway, uh, against this background, Clay calls up Erhard and says, uh, my people tell me that you're planning to announce a decontrol of prices and uh, elimination of rationing for some goods. And they tell me that would be a big mistake. And Erhard says, that's okay, General Clay. My advisors also tell me it would be a big mistake. <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I, Erhard was actually being humorous. I mean, his advisors were actually telling him that it was a good idea, or at least some of them. Yeah. He, ha he had people he was listening to who were telling him that if you want markets to clear, if you want production to revive, you need to decontrol prices and quantities. Uh, he he had not joined he had not joined the Nazi Party during the war. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, I mentioned that just um, I, I just feel compelled to mention that. Well, I, there are three heroic German economists I talk about: uh, Erhard, Walter Eucken, who not only didn't join the Nazi Party but participated in sort of an underground group, which was sort of planning what can we do after the Nazis lose to revive the economy after the war, something that was completely illegal to do. And Eucken was very lucky not to be arrested during the war because he was friends with uh, a politician named Karl Gerdler, and Gerdler was involved in the Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, Gerdler's character is actually portrayed in the movie Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. Uh, and then the third one is Wilhelm Repke. Repke is giving is fired from his job at the University of Marburg for giving anti-Nazi speeches, and I start chapter six with uh, Repke being visited by two members of the SS who suggest to him that if he'd like his job back, he should stop criticizing the Nazis, and uh, Repke just tosses them out of his house. And once he's shut the door behind them, he says to himself, eh, "I'd probably better leave the country." 
Yeah. <laughs> and he spends the rest of the war in Istanbul. Mm. Yeah, it's important to you point this out. It's important that um, people remember that the the German words that formed the uh, acronym for Nazi were the National Socialists, uh, National Socialism, not uh, some free market right right wing. They were right wing, but they weren't free market. So people who were on the other side, the class. Well, that's liberals. one reason the term right wing is dangerous to use at all. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so you point out that. Uh, oh, let me ask you about Galbraith first, though. Now, to, to those of us who like prices, us Hayekians who who really are big fans of the ability of prices to signal information, steer resources, and do all their magical stuff, and then we have people on the other side, and, and there's a, they appear sporadically throughout the book. People like Galbraith who don't trust prices. There's people like Pigou who say they don't reflect externalities. We've got to adjust them. Uh, there's the there's a lot of folks like that. Who who are, who appears throughout the book, and then we get an episode like this German episode. It, it's you could argue it's as close as we can get to a national experiment after a natural experiment after Earhart removes price controls and is told it's going to be a disaster. It's not a disaster. Germany, not at all. Germany, the shelves almost immediately fill with goods. The black market activity becomes out comes out in the open. Uh, the factories go back to work. Construction crews start rebuilding the cities, and it's a remarkable recovery. So I don't want to pick on John Kenneth Galbraith because he's not alone, and, and you and I might do the same thing in the face of, of empirical evidence that, that shakes our worldview. But did he write an article saying I was wrong? Did, did, did anybody from that experience, you think, say, wow, we really underappreciated what prices can do and, why, and we should leave them alone? Except sometimes. Gal <laughs> Galbraith, I do not think, ever wrote that article. And in fact, he went from post-war advising post-war Germany to advising post-war India. In fact, of course, he became the ambassador to India under John F. Kennedy. And India was considering central planning of a sort. And Galbraith said, no question you have to do that. There's no other way for the economy to develop. If you rely on the market, nothing's going to happen. Uh, he g gives a series of lectures, which is published as a book, I forget the title, uh, in which he basically gives that advice. You're not going to develop unless you have a central government plan for generating the right amount of investment in heavy industry and so on. So I don't think Galbraith ever did learn that lesson. So is the glass half full or half empty? I mean, one way to look when I made that remark about the debates, same debate, it's really an ideological debate, philosophical debate. Um, you know, one view says, oh, the glass is half empty. We just are, we're arguing about the same things over and over again. The other view says, well, it's actually half full because there's a bunch of things we don't, they're not on the table anymore. Central planning is not really on the table, really. I think that's right. Exactly. Comprehensive central planning, no. Five year industry plans. by industry. Yeah. We still debate about <laughs> yeah. that. So, well, that's, that's yeah, that, that's the half. Empty back again. It, but price controls um, are no longer taken very seriously, except industry by industry, right? In price in medicine, we think yeah. if we call it something else, we can make price controls work. Call it cost containment. Yeah, although Milton Friedman said on this program in 2006 that the only reason that price controls weren't on the table anymore is because too many people were alive who'd lived through them in the 70s in the United States. And as they started to die off, they'd become appealing again. I, ho I hope he's wrong about that. But 
Uh, I, I suggested naively that it was due to the great job economists had done in explaining how bad they were, but he had a different view. Um, it's um, given this view of economists, it's it's hard not to see the role of economists through rent-seeking eyes. Um, the persistent faith in we can do better than the price system on its own. Um, there, there's a temptation to say, a cynical temptation to say that, well, economists would say that. It, it's what gives them power. I don't try to do that in this book. I, I know you don't. Some, somebody enough. could write a different book in which we find out you know, what private axes uh, people have to grind. But I treat the economists who have bad ideas as sincere people who have bad ideas. Yeah, I think they could be sincere. And, and I, I don't want to, again, I, I don't want to suggest... Well, sincere and disinterested. Okay, yeah. I think that's impossible, but you're kind. <laughs> but you're right, it's not in the book. Um, there, there's no... Um, the book's very unjudgmental about the motivations of folks, and it should be. I mean, I'm just speculating here. I have no idea what really motivates people. But I think if you step back outside the profession, what appears to motivate people <laughs> based on the evidence is um, power. And everybody else is motivated by it. Why wouldn't we be? Right? It's not a very yeah, attractive and, thought. And I'm but... sure we could both think of examples that would illustrate that. Good. We'll keep them to ourselves, though, because it's funny. It's it, there's something um, um, classless or distasteful about suggesting that, but I think there's some truth to it. But I think we have to consider the ideas uh, on their own merits. Will it really help the economy be more prosperous? Well, I agree with that. I, I don't think – yeah, otherwise you, you're, you're in a form of ad hominem. Um, That's right. But what I'm really suggesting – the point I'm really trying to make, and the, the other side would make it about us too, is that – the unwillingness to accept new evidence is, is damning of one's position. So the left, the interventionists would look at us and say, isn't it obvious that 2008 proved that markets don't clear or markets are destructive, capitalism runs amok now and then, and government has to intervene? And, and the other side looks at it and says, don't you realize that in 1948 that proved once and for all that prices are great? And I guess we can just keep telling our stories, our expose well, stories. I the story I tell about the financial crisis is, look, it happened under central banking. It happened under a heavily regulated banking system. It didn't happen under laissez-faire. So how can it be an indictment of laissez-faire? Yeah. Well, the other side is an answer to that. I, I, of course, I'm sympathetic to that view, uh, but uh, I would be. That's my view. Um, let's turn to the road to serfdom, which Hayek writes in 1944. Uh, it's been treated as a prediction and Hayek was very clear that it was a warning. What's the distinction? Well, the distinction is that you can change your ways or mend your ways, Hayek sometimes put it. Uh, so if when central planning fails to deliver the goods, you try even harder uh, to centrally plan and eliminate black markets and every way in which people are trying to get around the plan, uh, then you'll make things worse, um, and you'll end up throwing people in jail for being in the black market or for saying the saying things which you think are encouraging other people uh, to be in the black market or criticizing the plan. You can accuse them of undermining the effectiveness of the plan. So civil liberties 
become endangered. Yeah, so the road to serfdom is not simply a summary of Hayek's criticism of socialism or market socialism as a workable alternative. It's a warning about the political implications of it. If when it, do it doesn't work, the people trying to implement it don't stop and say, oh, I guess we need to step back and try something else, then you're headed down the road to serfdom, right? Then you're going to end up limiting people's liberty. But you can always step away from that path. Uh, do you think we're um, it's anything to worry about today? Governments yes. spending a lot of money in the United States relative to what it has in the past. Uh, federal expenditures as a function of GDP is 25 percent, uh, which is up dramatically from 19-ish a few years ago. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, to be it, accurate, but, but the, really, Hayek isn't really warning about that. Uh, in particular, he's not warning about government collecting a lot in taxes and then writing a lot of people like uh, checks, like Social Security checks, uh, to spend their own money in markets. What he's warning about is government trying to control industries, trying to control output and planning and investment. Uh, that's what he's warning about. And we're in danger of that in the way we're treating the healthcare industry. And the financial uh, sector, perhaps. And, and the financial sector. And education. Higher education, <laughs> especially. Yeah. Lower, higher, yeah. Um, it is, I don't know, it, it, it's hard to know how important it is in terms of, we're not close to tyranny in the United States, so it's, um, I think That's it's right. tempting to, it, you have to avoid the temptation to get overly uh, worked up about it. At least it seems that way to me. But, right, but uh, I mean, there is a, an important constitutional issue that's now, or that, that has been argued in front of the Supreme Court, and we're waiting for their decision on it, which is, is it an infringement on your constitutionally protected liberties to be told you have to buy health insurance or you go to, well, I'm not sure what the penalty is, <laughs> but you have to. Yeah, I have to say, oh, I, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. I have no idea. I, I mean, my first impulse to say is that I should be free not to buy health insurance, but there's so many other things that the Supreme Court has condoned as constitutional. It's hard to understand why this one is uh, – I mean, it's the boiling the frog problem, which um, uh, the idea that you know you turn the heat up a little bit and a little bit, a little bit, and just a little bit hotter, and then when the frog's boiled, it's too late. But it's hard to understand why this is a, a quantum leap in uh, temperature. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm with you. I don't think it it's a step. It's not all that much bigger than the step of declaring everything interstate commerce. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. Um, but it, it's where we are now, so if we want to draw a line somewhere, this is where we have. Yeah, that's true. It. That's true. Oh, Keynes's reaction to the road to serfdom. Keynes, as most people know, uh, many know, died young relative to uh, certainly to Hayek, who, who lived to a ripe old age of uh, ninety something, right? Ninety two, ninety yeah. three, ninety two, I think. Um, but Keynes died in the late forties. Yeah, forty six. Hayek in in ninety two, and but we do have Kansas' reaction to the road to serfdom, and we have Orwell's reaction, which is kind of cool, because Orwell had also written nineteen eighty four, which was a you know a dystopian, uh, apocalyptic vision, um, a sort of his own road to serfdom. 
describe their reactions, because the Keynesian one's not the full one is not widely known. That's right. I mean, Keynes writes Hayek a letter, and I believe he writes Hayek this letter while he's on a ship crossing the Atlantic from England to the U.S. to attend the Bretton Woods conference. Uh, and it, it has two parts, and people sometimes just quote the first part. And in the first part, Keynes says, it's a magnificent book, and I'm in wholehearted agreement with it, in fact, deeply moved agreement. And then the rest of it, it says, but <laughs> I don't agree with you when you say what we need is less planning. I think we almost certainly want more planning, and it'll be safe to have more planning as long as the people in charge of the planning are people who share your and mine liberal sensibilities. So in a community where people think rightly, this is all safe. But yes, we have to worry about a community where people don't share these same ideas. So he, Keynes basically missed the entire point of the book which is it's not about the personalities of people in charge. The very system selects people who, disre who will disregard uh, liberal sensibilities or the, the rights of their fellow citizens. Right? Hayek has an entire chapter entitled Why the Worst Get on Top. Uh, so Keynes missed that point, and Keynes seemed to think that as long as he and his friends from Cambridge were in charge, everything would be okay. Well, I think the reason he missed that point, actually, to, to, to defend Keynes, is that he was on top. He he was the most he was the most influential public intellectual during his lifetime, by, right. by an enormous amount. He had the ear of of the powerful, and he occasionally had his hand on the on the throttle or the steering wheel or whatever crummy metaphor you want to pick. And I think it was reasonable talking about. You know, casual empirical evidence as we were a few minutes ago, and natural experiments. His view was that that Hayek was wrong. The worst don't get on top. Look at look at me. I'm not the worst, and he wasn't for sure. And it, it's gonna it's fine. In in civilized civilized countries, the people who get power that are the decent sorts, not not the people in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. They're not Beria and 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 Himmler. It's people like Keynes and you know, good Cambridge folk. One of the interesting episodes I learned writing the book and, and put in the book is that Hayek's Road to Serfdom is reviewed by an economist named Evan Durbin, who was, you might say, the chief theoretician of the Labour Party at this time, the, the same Labour Party that was doing all the nationalizations just after the war. In England. And, in England. And as he reviews Hayek's book, Durbin says, well, this idea that it's going to lead to serfdom is you know, way out of line. When we get into charge, we, the Labour Party, we absolutely will not have, say, forced allocation of labor to what jobs we think they ought to take. We'll still have a free labor market. And when labor does get into power, this question arises. Do we want to uh, allocate labor by sort of drafting people and telling them what industry they have to work in? And Durbin says, no, we don't want to go down that road. So I think they high argument may have helped moderate where planning led uh, in England. They never really adopt a kind of ghost plan system, a kind of Soviet planning system where quantities and, and transfer prices are dictated to firms. They do nationalize industries, and together the nationalized industries employ about a fifth of the workforce, so it is serious, but they don't try to centrally plan the entire economy, although some within the Labour Party wanted to. 
that doesn't become the dominant view. Um, I think partly because they, they were sensitive to the civil liberties issues. Yeah, could be. Uh, and we do still have, you know, the Constitution here in the United States is is pretty good about civil liberties. There's not been the erosion there that there's been in the economic policy area, although with terrorism, there's been some erosion, obviously. Yes. Um, uh, let's let's go back to India uh, because you spend a chapter in India, which is a uh, I think particularly appropriate given its current situation in the world. Um, and you go back and talk about the post-war uh, planning era that they went through, the influence of Nehru and uh, Indian economists. There was a lonely voice in India, Shinoy. I don't know how you pronounce his name. Yeah, Shinoy. But he um, he stood up and said, "Now this is a mistake. This centralized planning." And he was a very lonely voice in the wilderness, but ultimately a number of Indian economists who had been trained initially in a more interventionist way uh, came around to his view. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, and I particularly focus on Jagdish Bhagwati, who is trained as a sort of planner. Uh, he and his whole generation come to Western universities and study with people like Tinbergen and Koopmans and uh, – Rosenstein, Rodin, all people who are advocating invest uh, central government planning of industrialization in order to lift poor countries out of poverty. Um, and I quote extensively from an, a very interesting interview Bhagwati gave in which he said, look, we were trained by people like Nikki Caldor and Joan Robinson, right, two very left-wing Keynesians, uh, somewhat British. influenced by Marxism uh, at Cambridge University. He says, uh, Amartya Sen and I were trained by these people. And when we came back to India, we were always looking for market failures and where we could fix them. Uh, and of course, we could find them everywhere. And we thought that you know, empowering government to fix them would make the economy work better. Uh, and Bhagwati was initially rather dismissive towards Shinoy's critique of planning because Shinoy was not writing in the most uh, rigorous mathematical style that the younger economists had been trained in. But Bhagwati comes around when he looks at the results, the actual results of the planning effort. The way it was implemented in India, firms were given quotas. And if you wanted to produce more than your quota, you had to get permission. You had to get a permit. And if you wanted to enter an industry you weren't already in, you had to get a permit. If you wanted to import foreign equipment, you had to get a permit. So it was called the permit raj or the permit regime. Uh, and it, the economy just stagnated, you know, produced a very weak rate of growth. Uh, and Bhagwati looked around the world and said, other countries are growing faster. We really need to rethink this in India. And that was influential, very influential on his generation of Indian economists who had been sort of trained in the planner approach to things. Now, certainly after the the uh, Indian economy was liberalized in the 80s and 90s. Well, the, the liberalization began, yeah. It, it isn't finished. Right. No, it's not finished at all. But certainly it's, it's much more uh, free than it was in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, the permits are pretty much gone. So the economy is growing well now. But it, I was surprised at how well it grew then. I, you know, to challenge my own preconceptions, when you describe the 
the permit regime and the philosophy of Nehru and others toward planning, you'd think they'd have stagnated, and yet they grew it. It appeared my crude calculation from your summary was maybe 3% a year. Not bad. That's right. So they well, didn't grow as fast but, as Korea. Big deal. Korea's a tough standard to match. Is it reasonable well, to hold them to that? It's 3%. It's less than that per capita because the population is growing. Good point. So it's a little over 1% per capita. Not so good. Okay. Not so good. And Fair enough. It, I, I quote the, uh, the description of it uh, often in the literature is that it was the Hindu rate of growth, which is actually a joke that a lot of people don't get when they use the term. It was supposed to be a play on the term secular rate of growth. In <laughs> India, we're mostly Hindus, so it's the Hindu rate of growth. Secular but, meaning over time rather than, over time, rather than not, not reli- non-religious. Without religion, yeah. yes. <laughs> That's a so bad was, anyway, joke. That's an obscure uh, joke. It was, a pretty, it was considered a pretty meager rate of growth. Uh, at the time, and it was, in fact, per capita. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I have to say, when I read that passage, I, I, it struck me that that maybe a better way of understanding it, going back to our um, my public choice view of economists, is that it wasn't so much that India's economists, Indians, India's economists got free market, but that India's got for more free market, and the economists came along. Uh, you know, it's do you have any feel for how important they were rather than just – were they leaders or followers? That's a very good question. Um, I mean I give some evidence that the, uh, there was influence from economists running to the government. And of course the, the current prime minister, uh, Manmohan Singh, is an economist and he was one of the leaders of the decontrol movement in the 80s. Uh, so I like to think that ideas helped influence him in changing policy. But of course, what made the policy change possible was a crisis. In particular, it was a rupee crisis. There was a a devaluation of the rupee. And then suddenly, ideas about decontrol as a way of reviving the economy became politically palatable. Uh, But the ideas had to be there before they could be taken off the shelf. Yeah, I just it's always a question to me of whether those are just convenient covers for what they would have done anyway. I don't know. It's a tough Well, one. I mean I think what the idea you referred to earlier of Friedman's that people have to learn from experience that a certain program of control doesn't work uh, is true and it was true in the Indian case. And so it's it's more about learning by doing, but I think somebody has to tell you what you need to learn from what you see. It's easy to learn the wrong lesson from experience. It's true. Uh, speaking of which, people who have different ideology than than yours want to learn very different things from the current European problems, which we referred to earlier. And would they, would they learn the same thing from India? Do you think? Is there anybody who wants to defend the earlier period of India and, and thinks that they're on the wrong path now? Again, this is sort of the half-full version of where we are. I can't think of anybody. I mean, there are Indian politicians and bureaucrats, of course, who don't want decontrol, deregulation to proceed too far too fast because they have their uh, constituencies and interests to look out for. But I can't think of any uh, respectable economists who think that the permit regime was the way to go in retrospect. 
I think you're right. Well, let, let's turn to the United States and, and monetary policy, which we talked about briefly earlier, and, and you talk about it at length, um, chapter on on Bretton Woods and, and monetary policy generally, and of course it, it runs through other parts of the book. We're at a rather remarkable time in U.S. policy history in the sense that while I don't think there's any likelihood that tomorrow uh, or even in February of January of 2013, there's going to be a abolition of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I'd agree uh, with that. But but it's it's on the table. It's it's at least there's on the table is a radical remaking, uh, an impossible reimagining of monetary policy. Um, are you surprised that that's happened in your lifetime? It's a tribute to your work to some extent. Uh, and do you think anything will happen from it? Of course, it comes back to the argument we just had. You're, you're, I don't think you're a follower, but it's hard to know how much of a leader you are. But I, I like to think you are, that you've had an impact on this debate. Certainly, as you say, you've, the ideas are there for others to grab, and they're grabbing them. They're actually taking serious, the, seriously the possibility of, of a radical change in monetary policy. Well, I, I – yeah, I don't take any credit for that, but I have to say I was – I am surprised that in my lifetime, somebody had a bestseller entitled End the Fed, <laughs> and the author of the book was invited to be on The Daily Show and <laughs> plugged the book and was treated respectfully. Right. That's shocking. So, yeah. So things can – the climate can change a bit. What, what do you think is in the realm of the feasible or the imaginable in how well, things might in change? The, in the next 10 years, yeah. I think it's feasible to – put some kind of serious single mandate on the Federal Reserve System to sort of constrain their freedom of action. I think it's possible to nail down some rules which would make impossible the sort of ad hoc crony interventions they made during the last during two thousand seven, two thousand eight, where they decided to bail out firm X but not firm Y, or they decided to overpay for assets. Or they decided we're going to give loans at below market interest rates to the following list of banks. Uh, those are important reforms, but you know I, I agree with you that it's not going to be on the agenda in the next ten years to uh, shut down the Fed. It may be possible to open up alternatives, uh, decriminalize the use of gold and silver coins, decriminalize the use of online gold transfer services or transfer services and other currencies that make it possible for people to have a more uh, easy access to an alternative to Federal Reserve currency or Federal Reserve denominated payments. Yeah, that would be good. Those would all be good. Um, when you talk about the single mandate, I assume you would keep the mandate for uh, low rate of inflation. And you'd get rid of the mandate uh, to keep full employment. Yes, I would take away any mandate to try to monkey with a real variable and just have a mandate for a single nominal target. Uh, I, I would prefer something other than the price level. I would prefer nominal income or an index of producer prices or following Hayek uh, rather than consumer prices. But – Something like that. The irony to me is that you know you and I see totally eye to eye on the um, 
uh, crony part and the ad hoc interventions. What's weird to me, we see eye to eye on the next part too, but what, what's weird to me is that the Fed is is despised not just for that, which is what really upsets me, but also for its its gross grotesque expansion of mo- of the money supply. But that hasn't made it out into the real economy. So well, if anything, right. it's they it's haven't only been the monetary base that's expanded grotesquely. And and when you ask them, uh. To Bernanke, when he testifies or speaks on on what he's done, he he always says, "Well, I have a mandate to to fight inflation, and I I don't want to do more than this. I've done plenty. We've done enough. If we need to, we'll do more. We could, but we've done enough." Um, seems to me they've done very little. They've they've printed a lot of money, but made sure that it's either made sure, or for whatever reason, it stayed in the banks. I don't see monetary policy as being very expansionary. And certainly Scott Sumner, who's in the Hayekian nominal income camp that you just mentioned, he'd he'd trace a different uh, lineage to it, but he'd certainly be in favor of that. He would say the Fed's failed terribly to keep its single mandate and and its second mandate. It's failed both. Well, yeah, Scott has an article entitled The Real Problem Was Nominal. Uh, where he thinks the reason we have a slow, slow recovery is that we're not back up to the nominal income path that we were on before the uh, financial crisis, that the Fed uh, you know, fell asleep at the switch and let nominal income drop. We had two quarters of actual deflation. Uh, and that it needs to get back up to the trend line we were on before. I'm not so sure we need to get back up to the trend line we're on before um nominal income is currently growing uh at more than 5%. So Sumner's view is that it should continue to grow at 5% per year. I would rather see it grow at 0% per year. Um but I do recognize that you need to prepare the public's expectations for a switch to a less inflationary regime. When you said zero, you didn't mean nominal income, you meant prices. I meant nominal income. You well, you wouldn't want nominal income to grow at zero. Why not? You want it to be flat, so that as real output grows, prices decline. Mm. Is that well? <laughs> we could take, take another hour to talk about that. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to make sure I understand the the the, the numerical example. You okay. want you want real income to grow. You want to yeah. you want to get to a point where real income is growing. Yeah. And and but nom I understand. Nominal income is flat, but real real prices are falling. You you want steady deflation uh and 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 a, you would prefer to see then fixed nominal income with steady deflation as productivity grows. That's right. It's a productivity norm as George Selgin calls it. And the um, well, let's take two minutes to talk about that since we put it on the table. I know we could take an hour. This, okay. This, the standard argument is that that would be very destructive, um, partly because of expectations. I, I would say only because of expectations. But do you worry about those? Yeah. So I think, like I said, you need to prepare people to expect it. You don't want to continue people raising their prices and raising their reservation wages when they're looking for a job. 
at a rate of uh, at a three percent rate per year until they find they've priced themselves out of the market. You want them to moderate to you know to charge prices and demand wages that are consistent with what they can actually get. But what I'm talking about is approximated by the regime we had under the classical gold standard, where when the world output of goods grew faster than the stock of gold, you had gradually declining prices. Um, and people enjoyed a higher standard of living because everything got cheaper and cheaper. But that's true because of productivity, not not because nominal prices were falling. No, that's right. But that's the way the productivity gain was communicated yeah, to them. Right. No, I, it's, it seems like how, – how long was that regime in place? Um, well, basically from 1879 to the eve of World War I. Uh-huh. You didn't have falling prices every year, but you had a long patch of prices falling at about 1% a year. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating, the um, fear of deflation that we live in now. But I, I do accept the point that in a time when right. people expect inflation, deflation would be, can be destructive. So we do need to distinguish between destructive deflations like 1930 to 32 and benign deflations that take place because output is growing. How can that be harmful? Yeah. Well, that will be a subject for another podcast. Okay. We'll talk. I'd love to talk some more about that. I mean, the technical footnote, we do need to make adjustments for things like population growth and so on. Yeah. Uh, My guest today has been Larry White. Larry, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It's been fun. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.